ho, ho. Obviously, as you can see, I'm in the Christmas spirit. Been a very, very jolly mood. That's about me. About the folks I'm about to talk about. It's an entirely different matter altogether. Stephen A. Smith show coming your way right now. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of the Stephen A. Smith Show, coming at you at the very least three times a week over the digital airwaves of YouTube. As usual, I'm here in my new studio, thanks to our official studio sponsor, FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel, the official studio sponsor for the Stephen A. Smith Show, by the way. Appreciate the love and support from my followers and subscribers. As usual, we continue to grow and climb. We've now exceeded over 434,000 followers in the first nine months. Can't thank y'all enough for keeping the love coming. Keep it coming. And I'm going to keep on coming. Please make sure to continue to like and follow the Stephen A. Smith Show right here on YouTube. Just click the bell to get notified for all of our new content. And bam, there you'll have it. And while you're doing all of that, please don't forget to pick up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. Make sure to go to straightshooterbook.com to get yourself a copy. Makes for the perfect Christmas gift. Trust me, I know this. At the end of the show, as usual, I'll be taking your calls. So hit me up. At the Stephen A. Smith Show at 888-727-5303. That's 888-SAS-5303. First order of business to get into is the Los Angeles Clippers. I can't believe I'm leading the show with the Los Angeles Clippers, but it's true. I have to talk about the Los Angeles Clippers. You know why? Because they're on fire. They've now won eight straight games, dating back to last night beating the Indiana Pacers 151. To 127. We know the Pacers don't play any defense, but that's a subject for another day. The player leading the charge is the one and only Mr. James Harden. Behind his season best 35 points at eight three-pointers. Here's the thing. When you're looking at the Los Angeles Clippers, and again, I can't believe I'm leading the show with these boys, but it's the truth. It's the truth. When I look at the reigning defending NBA champion Denver Nuggets, somebody needs to say it, so I'm going to say it. The Clippers appear to be the number one threat to the Denver Nuggets in the Western Conference. We can make an argument in all of the NBA. Certainly, you got to take Boston and Milwaukee into consideration, no doubt about that, in the Eastern Conference, along with Joel Embiid playing the way that he's playing, which we'll get to in a second. But right now, when we look at the Los Angeles Clippers, what is there to say? You've got Zubak, a big man in the middle. You've got guys like Terrence Mann and Russell Westbrook who can give you some stuff, whether they're starting or coming off the bench. But when you look at the big three on the Los Angeles Clippers, it's official. It's Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and James Harden. James Harden is averaging 20 and 9, 20 points, 9 assists. You saw what he did last night against the Indiana Pacers, which ain't saying much. Again, I understand that considering how poultry they are and porous they are defensively. But the reality is, is that if Kawhi Leonard isn't going to miss for so many games and he's going to be healthy enough and available for the whole season, if Paul George is going to play that bully ball he promised to play when he was on his own podcast, Podcast P, with yours truly as his guest, swearing up and down he was going to play bully ball against everybody, that included Devin Booker, but not limited to him. And then you see him going out there averaging 22 a game, being the second leading scorer. Kawhi Leonard averaging 24 a game, being the leading scorer. James Harden distributing the basketball and being that point guard that Ty Lue, the head coach, need, needed so desperately. And you see Russell Westbrook board all in. Energizer bunny, enthusiastic, getting along with his teammates, cultivating that relationship and what have you. I got to tell you something right now. 
The best team in Los Angeles is the Clippers. It damn sure ain't the Lakers, the in-season tournament champions. It ain't them. We saw LeBron James and Anthony Davis do their thing last night in a loss to the New York Knicks. We saw the rest of the team shoot 33%. We watched a Los Angeles Lakers squad that prioritized the in-season tournament. But outside of the in-season tournament, their record is 9-12. and 12. Think about that for a second here. We're talking about a Lakers team that's lost three of the last four, but the Clippers have won eight straight. Who can't they score on? Who can't they put the ball in the hole against? Who don't they have a chance to defend against when you have elite defenders like a Kawhi Leonard and a Paul George on your squad? Think about that for a second here. I'm looking at the Phoenix Suns. I mean, my God, I can't call them a big three. Bradley Beal hurt again. No, no knock on him. His legitimate injury twisted that ankle. We got that. He came down to somebody's foot. He's not well after being gone so long because of his back injury. We're looking at the Lakers. I already spoke about the Lakers. Am I supposed to believe in Minnesota? They are 20 and five. Anthony Edwards is something special. Don't give a damn about his off-court situation. That's not a transgression, by the way. Getting loose and getting some when you're that young and that rich is not a crime. So don't try to judge Anthony Anthony Edwards, I'm sorry, off the court. Judge that brother while what he's doing on the court. He's gotten over a $200 million contract and deserves every penny. He is a star elevating himself to superstar status. But I can't believe in Minnesota when you got Rudy Gobert, and Carl Anthony Towns playing together as elite as they are defensively, that's in a regular season. What are they going to do in the postseason? I don't know the answer to that question. But I think I do. Every time Rudy Gobert shows up in the postseason, teams go small. They force him to come out to the perimeter. He can do it, but only so much because that ain't his position. That's why Utah couldn't get very far when they had him and Donovan Mitchell. That's why Minnesota wasn't going to get so far last year. And that's why I can't anticipate them getting far now. So I get where y'all coming from. Minnesota's a team to, to, that can't be ignored. Oklahoma City, with Shea Gilgis Alexander, who is a star personified. And Chet Holmgren is no joke. Keep thinking like when Bianca automatically is going to be your rookie of the year if you want to. Chet Holmgren's going to have something to say about that because that brother can play too, and Oklahoma City is winning. But do I really sit, am I really supposed to sit here and believe that come playoff time in a best of seven series with Ty Lue as the coach, with veterans like George and Harden and Kawhi Leonard and Russell Westbrook, am I really supposed to believe that a young squad like Oklahoma City is going to knock them off? I don't think so. So the Los Angeles Clippers are in play. Yes, there may very well be a team from Los Angeles in the NBA Finals. But that don't mean it's going to be the Lakers. I personally hope the Lakers, because L.A. is a more festive city when the Lakers are relevant as opposed to the Clippers. But I just got to be honest. The Clippers look like the better team right now. They look like the better team. And when they lost to the Lakers a few weeks ago, Paul George fouled out of that game. He doesn't foul out of that game. I don't know if the Lakers win that game. Keep that in mind, too. Clippers are coming. The Clippers are coming. Let me transition to another story about another NBA team on the rise. And that's a team that's in the Eastern Conference. We know in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks are getting all the hype. 
All the prognosticators, including myself, got one or the other coming out of the East. I got Boston. Others have Milwaukee. But we need to pause for a second just to stop sleeping on the Philadelphia 76ers. Right now, they're third in the East. By the way, in case you didn't know, Joel Embiid, the reigning league MVP, is leading the league in scoring with 34.4 points per game. Shooting better than 50% from the field. The MVP looks like the MVP. And that ain't all when it comes to the Sixers. There you have it, 53% from the field. 11.8 rebounds, six assists per game, nearly two blocks per game. If the league was to vote on league MVP today, who else you going to give it to? It's got to be Embiid. It's got to be Embiid. But we all know he's never been in the conference finals, and that's what he has to make sure he does now. He's got to get to a conference finals. Doc Rivers is going as the coach. Nick Nurse is in there. Nick Nurse is a champion with the Toronto Raptors. I got to tell you, Nick Nurse is doing a hell of a job. The Philadelphia 76ers are the third best team, only a game out of the lead in the Eastern Conference. You look at it right there, they're 18 and eight, two and a half games out of the lead, my bad. Only a game back of Milwaukee for second place, top two seed. By the way, when you look at the Philadelphia 76ers, we can't forget about the Orlando Magic because my guy, Paolo Pancaro, he's about to come on up on this show, right here, the Stephen A. Smith Show, but we'll get into him a little bit later. When you look at the Philadelphia 76ers right now, Embiid is Embiid. We know what a superstar he is. Here's what we can't ignore. The elevation of Tyrese Maxey. The skills of a Tobias Harris. The pace of play that Nick Nurse has instituted, which has given the Philadelphia 76ers offense more bites at the proverbial apple. They're a team to be reckoned with. They can't be ignored. And Daryl Morey, the newly crowned contract extension, Daryl Morey is president of basketball operations. This dude does know how to go out and acquire talent. He gets one piece, one piece. Imagine if he got a Zach Levine. Imagine if he got somebody of that ilk. The Philadelphia 76ers are going to have something to say about it. Here's the only point that I'm bringing up. As we sit here and recognize the fact that James Harden's absence and subtraction has been an additive for the Philadelphia 76ers. It's also been an additive for him with the Clippers, and it's been an additive for them. Having said all of that, we can no longer sit here and definitively state that the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks hold dominion over the Eastern Conference in such a fashion that they can't get knocked off. Yes, the hell they can. The Philadelphia 76ers could do it. I still think they need a piece. But the way Embiid is playing and Maxie is playing and Nick Nurse has them playing collectively, I cannot rule the 76ers out. I just can't do it. I really, really can't. I want to move on to a particular subject that's near and dear and should be to all of us. Because more NBA news it's important to bring up that Memphis Grizzlies guard John Moran has returned from his early season suspension. He missed the first 25 games of the season while suspended for the several uh, instances of brandishing a gun in public over the last few months. Last week, Moran addressed his time away and said that he learned about himself during therapy and revealed 
he had not talked to other NBA players outside of his teammates while sitting out for the season. Let's listen to what John Moran had to say here. It's been, you know, a process. You know, obviously, I wouldn't say, you know, uh, I regret it, but I'm, you know, not happy that it happened. Um, but I'm also, you know, grateful that, you know, I had this opportunity to, like you said, reflect um, and do things that, you know, I felt like was not only needed for me, but, you know, for my family, you know, as well for us to, you know, realize pretty much, you know, what's all at stake, you know, um, ways, you know, we can, you know, keep each other happy um, and, you know, how we just, you know, have each other's back. I feel like we obviously been close before, but we came together, you know, even more, you know, during this process. Um, but like I said earlier, you know, I can't say I sit up here and regret it because in the end, I feel like it made me better. That remains to be seen. So is whether or not John Moran is a role model. I would tell you this. I think the brother's heart's in the right place. I think one of the things we have to take into consideration is the element from which players come from. It's pretty hard to disassociate yourself from people who were there for you when you had nothing. It's real easy for the world to look at these young players and say, separate yourself, distance yourself, blah, 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 blah. From the people who were there with you, who came up with you, no, they weren't on the basketball court with you, no, they didn't dribble a basketball or shoot a jump shot or a dunk for you. But what they were able to do for you is give you a cushion and provide you the kind of cocoon that insulated you from some of the outside noise that would have derailed you from what you were ultimately aiming to accomplish. So there's a level of sensitivity that we all need to have towards John Morant finding himself in the precarious situations he found himself in. Fair enough. Fair enough. The flip side to it, however, is that John Morant, by all accounts, lost more than $7.6 million in salary, uh, lost a grand total of about $40 million when you take into account endorsement deals that went by the wayside because of him being in a strip club one minute flashing a gun that got him suspended for eight games. And then after that, following that up with one of his friends literally putting him on Instagram Live where it looked like he was flashing another gun. That's, that's in, in violation of no laws in the state of Tennessee or various other states in this union. But it is in violation of the NBA bylaws, which have something to do with the money that you get paid on a day-to-day -day basis, on a game-to-game -game basis. So we need to understand that. And in the process of doing so, we need to take a moment to really reflect on John Morant and the trouble that he found himself in to a lesser degree and to a different degree, the kind of trouble that Draymond Green has found himself in where he's now in counseling because of the Rudy Gobert choke and then ultimately uh, slapping the Yusuf Nurkic uh, in, in, on the left side of his face and what have you. Here's the deal. Once upon a time, they were talking about Draymond Green being the successor to Charles Barkley. Now you're wondering what the hell he's going to be doing with his life in the event that none of those opportunities present themselves. Do I think it's a death sentence what happened to Draymond Green as it pertains to his career aspirations? No, I do not. But I think it will be if he comes back and no change is seen. John Morant, is he going to derail his aspirations? No, not if he's not seen on video and all of this other stuff, but what if he is? That can't happen again. He can't find himself in a situation where he is being associated with firearms. Not as long as he's playing in the NBA. 
And that doesn't just go for him. It goes for the company he keeps. You can't be allegedly in the tunnels of an arena with a red laser uh, purportedly emanating from a gun aimed at the opposing team's personnel. You can't have friends and family members about to get into fights with people. You can't have family members getting into situations at a mall where ultimately you come and you get involved and allegedly you're threatening mall security folks and things of that nature. That cannot happen any longer. John Moran is a superstar, but with being a superstar comes super responsibilities. He doesn't like it. Most of us don't like it. Hell, in the media industry, as well known as I am, I don't like it. There are things that I wish I could do, and I didn't have to worry about cameras looking at me and all of this other stuff. Nothing illegal. Nothing illegal. But nevertheless, I may not want everybody knowing my business. Well, guess what? You just can't do those things anymore. Just can't. And that's what John Morant has to accept. You can't be this person with this maverick mentality, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whomever I damn well please, but can I get some of your money? It doesn't work that way in the real world. In the real world, you have to capitulate to some things for the greater good. I may want to go to a strip club. I may want to mess with a porn star. I may want to do this or do that, but guess what? That's not a good look for the people that are paying me 30, 35, 40 million a year. So is the porn star, is the strip club, all my boys with their guns and everything, is that worth these dollars? The answer's no. The answer's no. You know it, they know it, everybody knows it. It's about the paper. The paper ain't about everything, but what you're doing is about that paper because you didn't aspire to go to the NBA so you could play basketball for free. You wanted to get paid. So get paid. And if it calls for you to squash or derail some of the habits that you once had, so be it. Develop new ones. You can afford it. You can certainly afford it. Got to go to break right now, but when we return, I'll speak to the Rookie of the Year, Orlando Magic star, Paolo Banquero. He's up next with yours truly right here on the Stephen A. Smith Show over the digital airwaves of YouTube. Don't touch that dial. Back with more in a minute. My guest today was the overall number one pick in the 2022 NBA draft, and he followed that up by winning the 2023 Rookie of the Year Award. He's now leading the charge for the Orlando Magic, who are currently off to one of their best starts in the history of the franchise. Please welcome to the Stephen A. Smith Show, Balo Bancaro. What's going on, big time? How are you, man? How's everything going, man? It's going good, man. Appreciate you having me on. Man, please. I remember being on here. It's uh, well. It's well-deserved. It's well-deserved. Put it to perspective, the kind of season. You're averaging about 20 and 7. You've been balling. Y'all are winning basketball games. I know you've lost your last two games, but damn it, y'all look better than you've, than you've looked in years. Put it to perspective what kind of season you're having personally and how you feel about the season Orlando Magic are having. Yeah, I think just uh, as a team, you know, we really took a step this year uh, just with our maturity, uh, our togetherness. And uh, we've really been playing hard. And uh, as for myself, just I learned a lot from my rookie year. So bringing uh, everything that I learned to year two, um, it's helped me a lot. Uh, and uh, 
I like the start we've been off to, and you know, hopefully we can keep it rolling. What did you learn from your rookie year? Tell us that. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, when you go through a whole season uh, and you don't know what to expect, you know, you kind of just, it's just trial by error. And so going into year two, you see where your weaknesses were and uh, all the things you had to improve on. And I think for me, I just became a lot more patient, um, knowing how to pick my spots and, uh, you know, be more efficient. And um, also just knowing where to be positioned, positionally on, on defense as well, I think uh, I've taken a step there. So just trying to improve on little things, really. Being a five-star recruit coming out of high school, going to Duke for a year, obviously, you're accustomed to winning, and then you go to Orlando and you struggle your first year. But you started off your career, if I remember correctly, you dropped 21 points, your, your first 27, I'm sorry, your first game in the NBA. What was it like for you going through those trials last year, going through those struggles, considering how foreign it was for you to be losing more than winning? Yeah, it was a, a a great learning experience. You know, it was uh, it was frustrating at first, like you said, coming from um, Duke. You know, winning, uh, you know, this is that's expected. So when you come into a situation where you're losing more than you're winning, you know, it might be hard to deal with at first. But I really took a lot of lessons from it, and um, you know, as a team, we built a culture together, and I think it's something to be said when you kind of have to start through the tough times and and get through that to get to where we are now where we're in a much better position and we're starting to win games. You know, I'm looking at you right now, and obviously you've always been seen as somebody who's composed. You seem to be older than what your age would indicate just because of the level of maturity you walk around with. When people look at you, Paolo, they say to themselves, okay, this brother can ball. We're usually looking at the squad and we're saying, they need veteran leadership. You always want that. But I'm looking at you. I'm looking at Suggs. I'm looking at the Wagner brothers. I'm looking at Cole Anthony. I kind of like the young crew that y'all have. I mean, do you feel like y'all are a squad that needs more veteran leadership or you like the youth movement that has been instilled in the franchise and how y'all are flowing along that way? Yeah, you know, I think, like you said, we got a great uh, core of guys that are really together and, and we get along really well. And I think we're just building more and more chemistry on the court. Um, obviously, I think some of the veterans we've, we've had in um, have helped a lot too, though. Um, Joe Ingles, I think, has been a huge help this year That's coming fair. from uh, Milwaukee. Uh, Gary Harris being yep. being a veteran, he's helped a lot too. So those guys contribute every day, and uh, we just all click very well together. I think the the veterans mix it with the young guys very well. And we're still figuring it out, but, uh, you know, the camaraderie is there. So that's the important part. You say you're figuring it out. Does that mean that there's a level of hesitation in saying you think we've arrived and we're going to be a team to be reckoned with? Or are you of the mindset, oh, we're there right now. We think we can compete with anybody. Where's your individual mindset? No, I think we can compete with anybody right now. Um, I think obviously we, we want to get to the playoffs, the postseason, and get that experience, which we haven't. So that's another uh, another level that we got to get to. But right now, I mean, you know, the way we've started, I think, hasn't really surprised anyone within the organization. I think we knew this was uh, attainable. So we just want to keep the momentum going and, and try to just, you know, get through this season. Obviously, it's going to be ups and downs, but we want to, you know, stay solid. You know, don't drop too many games. We want to win, you know, hopefully go on another win streak and, uh, you know, get in good position to get a good playoff seed. 
Y'all went through a stretch where I think y'all won about six straight, if I remember correctly. Damn it, I think it was nine straight. And you know, your book ended, you beat Milwaukee to start off your streak near the tail end of it. You beat Boston. Those are considered to be two of the premier teams in the Eastern Conference. Where do you guys at this particular juncture feel like you rank, you rank with those guys? One's got Giannis and Dame. The other's got Tatum and Brown. What about you guys? What do you guys feel you are when you take them into consideration? Yeah, yeah, you know, we feel like we're in the mix right now um, and, and we can be in the mix the rest of the way. Um, obviously, like I said, the playoffs is, a, is another step. So we want to get there. But as far as regular season goes, I don't think there's anybody who, you know, we can't beat on, a, on any given night. Obviously, we just took two, two tough losses, but, you know, we're looking to bounce back and um, I, I like us against anybody. You know, I'm looking at the Orlando Magic right now, and I thought about the in-season tournament. Y'all were on the outside looking in because of a point differential. Y'all won like three or the four or four to five games in-season tournament that y'all played. How did y'all feel about missing that in-season tournament? Was that a big deal with y'all? Or is it like, hey, it's just a regular season. We'll be all right. We got bigger goals. Yeah, I think at first uh, everybody was a little bummed out because we thought we were in good position to to advance, um, and that was something that we wanted to do. Um, obviously, with the first year, you kind of get an extra bit of excitement, and we felt like we had a good chance, especially after uh, after beating Boston. But you know, it didn't work out, and I think we moved on pretty quickly. And uh, you know, now our our minds are obviously on just you know finishing this, finishing or continuing to go through the season strong and. Uh, you know, getting good postseason position. How did you guys feel overall about the in-season tournament period? Because a lot of people at its inception were a bit skeptical of it. They were like, man, please, these guys shouldn't need extra incentive. They get paid. They got a job to do. Go out there, play, and win as many regular season games as you possibly can. What the hell is with all the extra incentive? But as the tournament went on, I, I found myself getting significantly more excited about it as a player. What was it like to participate in the in-season tournament at that time? Yeah, it was it was fun. Um, I think we really embraced it as a team. Uh, you know, we reminded each other, obviously, that there's money on the line. And, uh, you know, every guy on the team, I think, you know, wanted to get that. And, uh, you know, obviously, our first in-season tournament game, we kind of took a bad loss. And after that, you know, we were had to remind ourselves, just kind of, you know, we're playing for something, so why not go out here and, and try and win and, we went, we won three straight after that and kind of, you know, we did what we could to, to advance. Um, obviously we didn't, but, uh, you just love the competitiveness and the environment that it brings out of, out of both, you know, both teams, both teams bring it when, the, when it's, it's a tournament game. Is there anything about the in-season tournament that you'd get rid of? I might, I might do something different with the court if it was up to me. Uh, some <laughs> of the court slippery. Uh, maybe maybe not all the colorfulness. Maybe just put like a logo in the middle and change mm -hmm. the logo up or something and keep it just regular hardwood. Right, but you don't have a problem with the point differential that ultimately kept y'all out of the out of going to the to semifinals and the finals of the in season tournament. Uh, I, I, if that's a rule that they want to imp implement, then I I don't think I have a problem with it. Obviously, we came out on the wrong end, but uh, I, I don't think it's a horrible way to decide things. Obviously, with the way it's set up. You know, still having to, you know, make it fit within the season. But, uh, you know, we kind of got did because the teams knew how much points they needed to, to advance mm -hmm. and we couldn't really do anything. So maybe if they did it to where, you know, all the games are played on the on the same day or something. But, you know, I, 
I wasn't too upset. Getting back to you, how do you feel about where your game is at this moment in time in your career? I mean, you've got skills. A lot of people look at you. They got a lot of respect for you. You got Wendell Carter, your teammate, saying that you're a Hall of Famer. You're destined for the Hall of Fame. I got to imagine that's a beautiful feeling for you or something beautiful for you to hear. But how are you feeling about your game at this point in time in your career, looking around the NBA and seeing where your skill set lies compared to the cats you got to go up against? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm feeling just real confident right now. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm just getting better. The game's slowing down for me a lot this year. Um, I just feel a lot more comfortable in just, you know, what I have to do game in and game out to to give our team a chance to win. And uh, obviously when, when the guys say great things about you, uh, you know, you love to hear it. Obviously, Wendell is a great, pair, a great player in his own right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that just speaks to the relationship that I have with my teammates and that they have with me, uh, like, you know, it's really something, you know, special in Orlando, you know, so I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to just keep working mm-hmm. and uh, take it as far as I can. You know, that's just my goal, you know, be the best player I could possibly be. What is it like living in Orlando and being in Orlando? Y'all been to the playoffs twice in recent memory. You ain't been out of the first round in over a decade, obviously. And this is a place where Shaq and Penny and the crew used to be. Those were the good old days. And obviously Dwight Howard and those brothers went to the finals before Kobe Bryant and the Lakers took them out. I'm asking you, being in Orlando, what is that like for you with that backdrop and with you being the clear star of the franchise moving forward? What's life like for you as a part of that franchise? Yeah, it's it's a blessing to be here. You know, I had never been to Orlando before I got drafted. So just to, since I first got to the city, just seeing what it's all about, seeing how passionate the fans are, obviously, like you said, you know, Penny, Shaq, um, Tracy McGrady, Dwight Howard, those are guys who, you know, made the Orlando Magic, you know, into what they were. They, they shaped the franchise. So just following those guys, you want to take after them and then you want to, you know, hopefully reach reach greater heights. You know, obviously uh, the city hasn't had a championship. So that's something that one day I hope to bring and uh, we hope to bring. And, uh, you know, you just want to do do you do your best for these fans because they deserve it. And you can just feel it um, with the excitement, how it's building. And uh, I really just appreciate being here. So uh, I'm excited for what's to come in Orlando. I'd be remiss in neglecting to mention Coach Mosley, who I think has done an outstanding job coaching you guys. What has it been like playing for him? It's been it's been great uh, since day one. You know, he's very hands on with his approach. He's a super uh, energetic guy. Um, every day he's the same, same energy. He's never, you know, really, he never really has off days in terms of his um, effort and his approach and how he pours into the team. So having a coach like that, who you know is going to show up every day with the same consistent energy, you know, it just motivates you as players to, you know, bring that same uh, same intensity. You know, he, he wants us to be the best we can be. And he pushes us every day, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't let us settle to be, uh, to be just good enough. You know, he, he really thinks we can be great, and uh, he doesn't let us settle. Anthony Edwards of the Minnesota Timberwolves, a young star in this league, I'm sure you know this. 
spoke about the importance of youngsters like himself and everybody playing every game they possibly can in turn instead of taking nights off. That's one of the reasons the in-season tournament came into play. What's your mentality about that as a guy that's on the grind, playing in the NBA, being a part of an 82-game schedule or whatever? I know people get tired, people get fatigued or whatever, but do you think it's a good thing that he said that and that there should be a, le a level of emphasis placed on guys playing as many games as they can? Yeah, yeah, I think it's actually a great thing that he said that. Uh, you know, one thing that I took away from playing uh, in the World Cup was, you know, him, uh, Macau Bridges is another guy. Those guys really never sat out. I think Macau hasn't missed the game and he has some crazy streak. Yep. And so um, those guys kind of motivated me coming out the summer to, you know, play as many games as I can. I think last year I played like 75. And, you know, this year I'm trying to play 82 if I can. So. Right. You know, that's just a great mentality to have, especially when you're young and you're, you know, still, you, for me, at least haven't reached my my top, you know, level yet. I, I want to play as much as I can, get as much experience as I can, you know, not really trying to take any any games off. And, you know, I've been blessed with good health and guys like Ant Edwards and other young stars around the league. I think the more we play, especially in the regular season, uh, it'll just bring more excitement to the league and uh, it'll just show, you know, players coming up who mm -hmm. come get drafted, you know, that you, you know, you should be able to play um, as much as you can. Obviously, if you're injured, you know, you shouldn't risk anything, right. but if you can play, you should play. A few more quick questions before I let you get on out of here real quick. Right now, as we sit here today, who's the best player in the world? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, if it was right now today, I had to say, I would say uh, Nikola, Nikola Jokic until mm -hmm. uh, someone knocks him off. What the hell is it about him? This guy can't jump onto a curb, but no one can stop him. He's phenomenal. What is it about? What what makes him so great? I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a certain knowledge and a, a certain cadence that basketball like there is on the court. And I think he's just mastered that uh, with his decision making, um, when to score, when to pass. Um just how he attacks you, you know, he's he's pretty much automatic anywhere around the paint. And so on top of being able to knock down shots and, you know, make you pay when you double team. So he's 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 a whole engine to an offense that just won a championship. So um, until I see someone knock him off, you know, I, he got the best player in the world stamp right now for me. You realize if the playoffs were to begin today, Orlando would be the fourth seed and you'd be going against the Miami Heat in the first round in all likelihood. How you feel about that? Yeah, like that that's the that's the type of experience that we that we're looking for that we need. Um obviously a team like Miami, they've been great in the East for a while and so that's a team that we're going to have to go through to get to where we need to get to and um obviously coach Spoelstra got to know him a little bit just playing with him in uh in the World Cup and uh he's a the ultimate competitor so um, you know, he's going to be locked in and his team's always locked in. And so I can't wait to compete against them. Last question for you. Have you forgiven Oklahoma City? I hear you don't like that franchise. Obviously, they <laughs> departed from the city of Seattle, you know, where you grew up and what have you. Have you forgiven them at all or do you still hate the Oklahoma City Thunder because they, the, the, the franchise departed from Seattle? This is what I've been hearing. No, man, I don't <laughs> hate the Oklahoma City Thunder. I actually, uh, I got to take a visit to Oklahoma City when I was in um, coming in the draft. And, right. You know, I got to see what they're all about with their coach and the GM. And uh, I really, you know, got to, I really like, like them. So, mm -hmm. 
no hate towards Oklahoma City. Obviously, Seattle, we love to still have a team there. But uh, no, nah, man, love, love them. And what they last, last question. You have an opportunity to make the case that if the NBA miraculously decided to, ex- to engage in expansion and add another team to the league, it would be between Vegas and Seattle. You clearly would make the case for Seattle. Other than the motion, Paulo, how would you make the case that Seattle would deserve an NBA franchise more so than Vegas? Uh, I think Seattle just is a great sports city. Um, you know, I could I could almost guarantee that, you know, them games would be would be sold out a lot more than not just with how much the city loves basketball uh, and loves all sports in general. And I think, you know, they've been waiting for it for a long time. So I think they deserve it. I think the, the basketball culture is, uh, is is second to none. So I don't know how you couldn't have a team there just with the culture and the, and the guys that have, have molded that city in the, in the basketball scene. It's a pretty damn good argument because there's a lot of distractions in Vegas. And so you can get caught up in the distractions and not support the NBA franchise. You're absolutely right about that. I appreciate you, man. Good luck with the rest of the season. Keep doing what you're doing. I love what I'm seeing from the Orlando Magic right now. Keep it up, my brother. All the best to you. Yes, sir. I appreciate you. No doubt. Take care, man. Welcome back to the Stephen A. Smith Show. You know, there's a difficult subject to tackle right here. It's the Detroit Pistons of the National Basketball Association. They are in the midst of a 24-game losing streak after losing to the Atlanta Hawks Monday night, 130 to 124. The NBA record is 28 games held by the Philadelphia 76ers. They possibly could become the worst team in NBA history. Now, for those who don't believe me, I want to let you know I am not instigating this conversation. I am a fan of Pistons head coach Monty Williams, who's in the midst of a $78 million contract that he signed last season to become the head coach for the Detroit Pistons. Let me just say this right now. His agent is looking pretty good. It's not his fault. He's a great coach as far as I'm concerned, a damn good coach at the very least. But this record is bad. It's very, very bad. And right now, when you look at the two highest paid NBA coaches, Greg Popovich and Monty Williams, and you see the recent 18-game losing streak the Spurs were on. Greg Popovich has got five years, $80 million. Monty Williams got six years, $78.5 million. But Greg Popovich has five NBA championships to show for it. Monty Williams has won the trip to the NBA Finals a couple of years back coaching the Phoenix Suns. A job, by the way, I don't believe he should have lost. But that is beside the point at this particular moment in time. This is historically bad. This is so bad, ladies and gentlemen. This is so bad. That the Wall Street Journal had that as a headline. Are the Detroit Pistons the worst team in NBA history? That was the headline. Why would they ask such a question? Because over the last 49 games, the Detroit Pistons, dating back to last season, over the last 49 games, they are 4 and 45. 4 and 45. They haven't won a game. Since late October. It's been more than a month and a half since they won a game. Seven weeks, damn near to be exact. I mean, I don't know what to say. Kay Cunningham is the number one overall pick. James Wiseman is the number two overall pick. 
You got some young bloods on the squad. I don't know what the hell is going on. But it's bad. It's very, very bad. And I'm going to bring back the Wall Street Journal. Ladies and gentlemen, the Wall Street Journal is about news and politics. Yeah, they have some sports articles here and there. But they're talking about the war in Ukraine. They're talking about immigration. And the crisis permeating through the streets of America because of crime and what have you. Not that all of it or most of it is associated with immigration, by the way. I'm just talking about the bunch of subjects that are lumped into their coverage. They don't talk about sports. Too often, unless something historic is going on. Or in this case, historically bad. Here's the only good thing that I could say. As horrible as that situation is, at least we're just talking about win-loss records in games. That's far different than what the hell is going on in the state of Texas. Greg Abbott, you ever heard of him? He's the governor for the state of Texas. On Monday... That governor, Governor Abbott, signed a bill into law that will allow the police to arrest migrants who enter the U.S. illegally. This law, which takes effect in March, allows any Texas law enforcement officer to arrest people who are suspected of entering the country illegally. This is bad, ladies and gentlemen. And before I go a step further, there's an individual by the name of Krish, K-R-I-S-H, Omara Vignaraja, V-I-G-N-A-R-A-J-A-H. That person is the CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, says, quote, by criminalizing the very act of seeking refuge, Texas is turning its back on the values of compassion and due process that make our nation the world's beacon of humanitarian leadership. That is one way to put it. There are various other ways to put it. This is a disgrace. It's inhumane. And it opens the floodgate to further divide our nation because when you have law enforcement that literally can arrest people over a suspicion, think about that for a second. People can be arrested who are suspected of entering the country illegally. Do you realize that that means a law enforcement official can walk up to somebody, all right, they look Hispanic. Okay, they, 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 their English is broken. They don't speak fluid English. So that could be a cause for me to arrest them. Let them deal with the problems later. Ladies and gentlemen, to get out of jail, bail costs money. It ain't free. To hire a lawyer, that costs money. It ain't free. You have essentially opened up an avenue to incarcerate people for no cause whatsoever other than a particular law enforcement official's suspicion. That's what we're going to do to our Latino brothers and sisters. It's racist. Somebody needs to say it, so I'm going to say it. It's a racist ass thing to do. Suspicion? Suspect. 
suspected of entering the country illegally. How can you be suspected of entering the country illegally? So you chilling in downtown Dallas or Houston. You hanging out with a bunch of folks. You're speaking Spanish instead of English. Your clothes might not be a Tom Ford suit or something. You might not be wearing a Jordan sweatsuit. You might look a little poor and impoverished, a bit haggardy or haphazard. Those things might, you might not look the part. That's a suspicion. They can literally label that as suspicion to justify arresting you, not questioning you, not asking for an ID. They literally can arrest you. That's criminal. See, what we're really learning here is that there are levels of enslavement. Yeah, I can deport you. I could send you back. Or I could keep you incarcerated. You can feed the system. Another body in there. We know the prisons throughout this nation, to some degree anyway, have been privatized. We do know that, right? You do know that there are people profiting off of folks getting incarcerated, right? If you don't believe me, go back and look at 13. That documentary on Netflix directed by Ava DuVernay. Go back and look at things like that and you'll see what I'm talking about. What a disgrace. And to think I love this state from the standpoint that it's got no state income taxes. You got beautiful cities like Dallas and Houston and Austin, Texas. I'm looking forward to being in a city like that someday. And then I see a governor like this doing this kind of nonsense. It's a damn disgrace. It really, really is. Let me switch gears to something of a lighter note. And that would be coming from my buddy, my friend, the one and only Charles Barkley himself. He's got a new show with Gail King on CNN, and he was recently speaking with Gail King on the subject of how long is too long for somebody to be engaged. From Barkley himself, quote, two is the magic number. You can only be engaged for two years. A man knows after two years if you're the one. After two years, kick rocks, keep it moving. Two years is the max. Now, needless to say, both he and Gail had different opinions on how long you should be engaged. Gail wasn't willing to go as far as two years. Of course, it's Gail King. This is what we're talking about here. Nobody's been more Oprah-fied than her. And I say that complimentary because I love Gail. She's a friend. But my Lord, if I told y'all about some of the debates she and I have gotten, and clearly we are from different stratospheres. And she's of the mindset that, you know what? It shouldn't take that long. It shouldn't take that long. You know what you women leave out? You know what? Who's to say it's the man that's waiting for two years? Who's to say y'all weren't the ones waiting for two years? You have become a bit more independent, right? You want to do things at your own pace, right? You got the right to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, whoever you please, right? All of those things are true, as it should be. 
I was raised by five women. I have no problem with an independent, strong woman, preferably black, by the way. I get it. But my point is why I got to be the fellas that, oh, you shouldn't be waiting two years for the fellas. I know plenty of women who've been engaged like I'm just not ready to go that far. I like my life. I I love you and I want to be with you. You know what? Not most, not all, but some women out there do but don't want to admit. Are you ready for this, fellas? You ready for this, fellas? You know what some women out there do? Some. Not most, not all, some. I'd put a small percentage on it. But you know what they do? It's not that they want to get married. They want to confiscate the you know what. They just don't want you going elsewhere. They want to keep it for themselves. And if I got the ring and we engaged and we in a relationship, then for you to go elsewhere would mean you're betraying vows you've made to them. And guess what? You're right to do that. You're right to think like that. Because that's exactly what some men do. Here's the thing. We kind of admit it. Y'all don't. That's the difference with your slick ass selves. I'll leave it at that. Now, let me get up and let's go look at some tweets on the big screen right here. (sighs) Okay. This is one of my favorite parts of the show when I take some of your tweets and I put it up on the big screen because I want everybody to know who you are. See, I want you to be able to hide. If you're going to tweet, I want them to see your Twitter handle. I want them to see exactly who's sending me some of these ridiculous, dumbass questions some of y'all be sending me, even though I do get some good ones, too. So let's go down the list. At CFC Accountable, Stephen A., my generational wealth is attracting the ladies, but how do I ensure they like me for who I am and not my deep pockets? Let me relieve you of your concerns. You'll never fully know. Ever. As long as you got dollars and they know you got those dollars, you'll never fully know. But I have to confess, and this is not a good thing to confess because I got people watching me right now. You understand what I'm saying? Especially my family and my loved ones. And and, and I usually don't reveal these kind of secrets. But for the purposes of my audience, because I love y'all so much, I'm going to do that today. I do have a strategy. And believe it or not, I learned it from my mama. And you know what that strategy is? Be a pain in the ass. Be a royal pain in the ass. Get on somebody's nerves so much that the only way they can stay with you is because they love you so much. All the money in the world wouldn't keep them with you because you are that much of a pain in the ass. If you do that, That is a strategy that could potentially work. Now, that doesn't mean it's foolproof because you got some women that could be in there for the long haul. I'll take whatever the hell I need to take to stay with you. And by the way, you got some sorry ass, mooching ass men who don't want to go out there and work their behinds off and provide for a living and instead want to make a living mooching off of women who do the same thing. So I'm not gender biased here. 
I'm just saying the closest you can get to it is being an annoying royal pain in the ass enough so that she looks at you and you look at her and you go like this. She must love me to be able to tolerate me with all of this nonsense. That's the closest you can get. Outside of that, I can tell you this. You'll never know. You'll never, ever know. So the best thing you could do is make sure you get as much as you can while you can. So if it does come to an end, you don't feel like you got hosed. You got something out of it just the same way she did. It's the best I could do for you, bro. It's the best I could do for you. Let's go to the next one right here, please. At Who's Breezy UK, he writes, Stephen A., what are some red and green flags you look out for in a woman? Okay. <clears throat> I don't trust a woman who does not know how to communicate. That's usually our problem. We're the ones, not me, because I know how to talk. But most of us as men have a problem communicating our thoughts and feelings and, such, and things of that nature. Women are not ones usually with that problem. If you run across a woman, I just want to Sally. You run across a woman and every time you want to, I really don't want to talk about it. You run across a woman and she's just up there, she's quiet, especially the ones that are quiet. And just look at you, but have nothing to say. Those are the most dangerous of all. There is no red flag greater than a woman that has nothing to say, but has that look that lets you know she could take your ass out. You don't want that. You ain't want to mess with that. She's the kind of person you sleep with one eye open at night. You scared of what she gonna do to you. You don't want that. You also don't want someone with, that goes to the extremes. You know, the one that'll slash your tires. The one that will, you know, that do all types of dastardly things to you because she didn't get her way. The psychotic ones. Because there's some kind of psychotic men too. This is, well, again, no gender bias here. There's all of that too. So those are definitely red flags, red flags, okay? Somebody that doesn't like sex or doesn't like enough of it, that's a red flag too. Because if she don't like it now, what the hell is she going to like once y'all get married? That ain't going to work. That's another red flag. Here's the green flags, which are good things. She can talk, she can communicate. She knows how to talk to you in a way where she's firm and commands respect, but doesn't disrespect you in the process. She understands there's a place that both of you have in the relationship. You play your position, she plays her position, whatever that position may be. It's not a societal standard, it's a standard you two create with one another. And here's the biggest one. You don't even ever have to hear her tell you she loves you. You can look at her and know she got me. When you see that, that's a green flag. She's special. Always treat her like she's special. Let's go to the next one right here. At the Marv One. Stephen A., can you name a moment of failure in your life that led to a future success? Easy. When ESPN fired me in 2009, or shall I say not renewed my contract. 
That was one of the most miserable moments of my adult life because it was scary and I was unemployed with no prospects whatsoever. And at that time, it was illuminated in my mind in the short period thereafter, all the mistakes that I had made. And the biggest mistake that I had made was that I left my destiny completely in their hands instead of taking control of it myself. It's one thing to have a job. It's one thing to have a career. But when you have either and you have no vision for yourself whatsoever, you leave your vision at the mercy of others. It's not knocking them or any employer. It's simply making the point that mastering your own business, meaning understanding what you want, what it entails, and how to go about getting it, is you being a visionary for your own destiny. That was sparked for me when I was let go in 2009. Now the thought of me being let go doesn't faze me nearly as much as it once did because I know I'm going to have a plan B or a plan C or a plan D if indeed that were to ever happen to me again. It has nothing to do with my present employer. It has everything to do with what you see here. This is mine. And it's mine because I had the vision to build it. So if I lost my job tomorrow, I could come right here and do this job. That was important to me. That was what I felt I needed to do. I hope that answers your question. Last one right here. At Zane's JSJS2885, Durant or Larry Bird? Tricky question here. I don't believe Larry Bird was the talent that Kevin Durant is. I think Kevin Durant is one of the top 10 players in the history of basketball based on his skills and his stats. But there are certain things you can't measure from stats. Larry Bird was a sniper, one of the greatest shooters in NBA history. By the way, a leader and a three-time champion. And he had the NBA, like Magic Johnson, on his back, having to build the league. Once upon a time when Larry Bird and Magic Johnson came into the league, the NBA Finals was on tape delay. They took it to another stratosphere, and made it acceptable for basketball to be brought into everyone's living room. And then Michael Jordan took it to another level and helped globalize the NBA into the iconic brand it is now today. But it starts with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And that is the reason I'd have to give Bird the edge over Durant. Durant, height, ball handling skills, overall ability, that goes to Durant. Larry Bird, leadership, and a willingness to embrace the pressure that comes with it, entirely different than Kevin Durant. I'd have to go with Larry Bird in that regard. There's one more tweet. I forgot, by the way. Let's go to that. At manboob underscore sports. Do you think we should go through with this? 
Rashad Mendenhall. I believe that's a former NBA NFL player. I think he was playing for the Steelers, if I remember correctly. He says, quote, I'm sick of average white guys commenting on football. Y'all not even good at football. Can we please replace the Pro Bowl with an all-black versus all-white bowl so these cats can stop trying to teach me who's good at football? I'm better than your GOAT. Brother, that's ignorant. Respectfully, that's, that's ignorant. First of all, the greatest quarterback who ever lived was white. That would be Tom Brady. Last time I checked, that's in the sport of football. The Drew Brees, the Dan Marinos, the John Elways of the world. Joe Montana's, the history of great quarterbacks throughout the National Football League, a lot of them were white. Now, we had some great black ones. Warren Moon, Donovan McNabb, okay, Steve McNair, various others. We see what Jalen Hurts is doing. Patrick Mahomes may be the greatest of all time. Let me not forget to throw Aaron Rodgers in that list of the white quarterbacks who've done big things, and I think he's one of the top, he's one of the top two greatest talents at the quarterback position in the history of football. Don't do this. There's plenty of brothers in the National Football League who can't play better than some of the white boys. There are more blacks that play better than more whites, but it's an amalgamation. It's a, it's a mosaic for a reason. You don't have to racialize it on this level. Cooper Cup can't play. Puka Nakua can't play, even though I wouldn't say he's white. You've got wide receivers who can play. You've got Christian McCaffrey, who's a league MVP candidate. He's white. You trying to tell me there's a whole bunch of brothers better than him? Shaw Mendenhall, with all due respect, you weren't better than him. Come on, bro. Let, 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 let's not do that. Let's be fair. There are more black players in basketball and football. That is true. But there are a lot of quality whites playing in those sports, too. Let's just be respectful and appreciate the greatness. I would have much rather prefer you talking about how black coaches aren't being given enough credit and enough opportunities compared to white counterparts. That would have been more fair. This is a bit extreme, bro. I can't go with you with that. I can't go with that, then. All right. Before I get on out of here, I decided I'm going to be in the Christmas spirit. I'm going to sit up here and I'm going to put on my Santa hat. You know, I think it's the right thing to do. OK, put on my Santa hat. How y'all like it? How do I look? I think I look pretty cool with it. You understand? It works for me because I'm in a Christmas spirit, as you can see. I'm in a Christmas spirit. So before I close out the show. And this is the last day, by the way, I'm here in studio. I'll be doing a few more shows this week, but I'll be on the road. I won't be here in the studio. This is the last day I'll be in studio for the year. So I'll be on the road thereafter. But since this is my last day, I want to put on this Christmas hat, show y'all I was in the Christmas spirit, and show y'all that, that I know how to show a little love, if you deserve it. Let's get to the calls before we get on out of here. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Matthew in Alabama, you're live with Stephen A. Talk to me, Matthew. How are you? I'm good, Stephen A. Thanks for taking my call. I got a question about uh, family members that like to play games at the Christmas gathering, like Dirty Santa, for an example. How do you feel about that? Depends on what the games are. Some games are fun. 
especially board games and stuff like that. Like, for example, if you're playing Family Feud and stuff, my family and I used to love playing that, particularly around Christmas time. So it depends on the game. Certain games are not cool. Certain games are. I don't know what those games are, but it's all about the flavor of the family. Amongst each other, you can get away with what you want to get away with because you got love for one another, and that's y'all thing. It's no wrong. It's nothing wrong with it. All right? Appreciate the call, man. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Let's go to Kyle in Florida. You're live with Stephen A. What's going on, Kyle? What's up, Stephen A.? Talk I just me. wanted to ask you, when you're a product of a divorce like me, you got a million Christmas parties to go to throughout the holiday season. What's the appropriate amount of time that you have to stay at a family function before you can leave? Well, it depends on whose family is it. When you talk about a family function, are you talking about your ex-wife's family? No, let's say uh, like your mom's side of the family. Your mom's, your mom or your mother-in-law or your former mother-in-law? Who? My my mother. Oh, please. please. No, no, no. If it's your mother, you stay as long as you want it. That's your mama. They ain't hers. Y'all divorcing all of that other stuff, but it's your mama. You stay as long as you want to stay. That's your mama. Now, if you at her mama's house and y'all are no longer together, in and out. Show your respects. Wish them a happy holiday or whatever. Hell, if it were me, I would just make a call. I wouldn't even go through there personally. But that would be about it. But my mama, God rest her soul, if she was alive and I was divorced and she's having a gathering, hell with the ex. The ex is lucky to be invited. That's my mama. That's my beef patty. That's my coconut toss she making. That's my turkey wings or my chicken or, 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 or my sweet potato pie or, or, or my stuffing and macaroni and cheese. Or, who the hell is she? That ain't her mama. That's my mama. So you stay as long as you want to stay with your mom. There ain't nothing to talk about there. You understand? Yeah, I got it, Stephen A. I appreciate it. You're the goat, man. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Let's go to... Was that Sebastian? You're live with Stephen yes, A. Is that is that your name? Yes, sir. Yeah, you calling me from Cali? What's going on, man? Yes, sir. What's going on, man? Ho, um, ho, ho. Big fan. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> big fan. Um, want to start off? I just want to know, like, um, what's some of your like top three, like, or just the top three of your top three um Christmas dishes? You know, for me, I'm Mexican, so I love like you know a lot of that. The, the stuff like that, like the soul. Me, me personally, like it's, it's kind of changed, Sebastian. My, my, my top three dishes, I love me some, some baked turkey wings, uh, mm. some stuff and macaroni and cheese. I loved when my mother would cake, make me my coconut tart and my beef patties. You know, that's me. Those were my favorite things to munch on during the holiday season. But now that mom is gone, although my sister Carmen is an unbelievable cook, She's sensational. She just mess, you know, the only part where she comes up short is when she tries to make those two dishes because that's, my mama set that standard. And so she don't usually meet that standard. You know, I got a friend, one of my friends, for example, her name is Nellie. She flies hell, by the way. You know, Nellie, let me tell you something about Nellie. She make these delicious chocolate chip cookies, but sometimes, right, you know, it gets tainted. Like, for example, here's the problem. When Nellie make these chocolate chip cookies, right, the ambiance matters. See, she made them for my boys. One of my boys that I went to college with, Mark Turner, she made it for him. So it don't taste quite as good because she used to make it for him. And so I'm salty about the fact that he got to taste the cookies instead of me. You see what I'm saying? So when I 
eat the cookies. It's just another piece of chocolate chip cookies that taste good, as opposed to something that's specially made for me. That's how I am. It's the same way with my sister Carmen. You understand? You know, when you make these dishes, like when you make some lasagna stuff, I know that's not for everybody. That's for me. But when she makes other stuff that she makes for everybody else, it don't taste the same because it's not for me. You see what I'm saying? The ambiance matters. The flavor matters. They throw a little something extra in there just for you. When my sister Sumatra tries to cook, well, she actually burnt food on a couple of occasions, but I won't hold that against her. You know what I'm saying? I won't hold that against her. But I'm just saying, you know, I mean, that, that's what happened. Okay, so it is what it is. She's screaming over on the side, calling it a lie, but it's not. It's not. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My point is, you know, it's all about the flavor. It's all about the flavor. It just matters. All right? You got my, you got my point, Sebastian? Nah, All right, you man. Clear, Take it easy, man. man. Happy yep. holidays, man. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you, my brother. Let's go to Owen in Colorado. You're live with Stephen A. What's up, Owen? Stephen A., where do you rank a guy like Santa Claus on the holiday totem pole when you guys when you got guys like the Easter Bunny, uh, Mrs. Claus, Cupid, uh, Leprechaun? Where do you where do you have a guy like Santa Claus? Well, Santa Claus, I would tell you, is right up there. Because the Christmas spirit, to say otherwise, you know, you're not in the Christmas spirit. Now, me, myself, I'm not the biggest fan of Christmas because I am Santa Claus. You know, I don't get a bunch of presents. I'm usually giving them out. And it's usually costing me a boatload of money. So it, 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 it affects me differently. But I would have to say there's no, you know, in terms of the holiday season, there's no, there's no greater figure than Santa Claus. Santa Claus is, is known, he's never the villain. It's always somebody that brings you cheer and, and smiles and all of this other stuff. And, you know, flying with the reindeer towards the North Pole to get the presents for the little kitties there. You know, because Stevie A love the kids. He sure does. You know what I'm saying. I mean, these kind of things happen. But I, I would have to say Santa Claus, man. Appreciate the call, man. Thank you so much. Let's go to Sid in Boise, Idaho. You're live with Stephen A. What's up, Sid? Hey, Stephen A. Smith. Uh, I moved to Chicago 15 years ago because I love football and it seemed far enough away that I wouldn't have to deal with Seahawks fans. Uh, but obviously, Chicago football has been pretty bad lately. Now, my question is this. My brother just had a baby and I'm torn. I want to share my love of football with him. So for Christmas, I bought him a Justin Fields onesie. But is it child abuse to force an innocent child into Bears fandom? And would this make me a bad uncle? I wouldn't say it's child abuse because the little kid don't know any better. So the negativity is not going to infect him. You understand? And Justin Fields could play. It ain't like you got him a scrub, you know, a onesie, you know, for, with a scrub, for a scrub. That's not okay. Justin Fields could play. Now, he just needs a better team around him. Now, maybe he's not going to be there. Maybe it'll be Caleb Williams next season. We got to see what the Chicago Bears are going to do in the offseason. But the bottom line is when you look at, 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 at Justin Fields and the Chicago Bears, you, you're, not, you're not wishing the kid. The, the kid's in Chicago um, you're teaching them hometown love and favoritism and what have you. There's absolutely positively nothing wrong with that. So don't even worry about it, my brother. Don't even worry about it. The onesie for, with the Justin Fields name on it, that, that, that works. Take it easy, my man. Thank you so much. That's it for this particular show. I'm getting ready to sign off. I hope y'all enjoyed my Christmas show right here with the Christmas spirit, my hat on and the Christmas background and all of that stuff. Again, this is my last day in studio, but it's not my last show for the years. I'll be doing a few more shows for you before I call it quits for the entire 2023 year. But I will be back soon, except it won't be in this beautiful, beautiful studio until the new year. Change is coming in the year 2024. As good as this year has been for me, best-selling book, 
obviously success with the number one show in the morning on ESPN, having this, which is owned and operated by me, my own show here on digital airwaves of YouTube. Can't thank y'all enough for all the support that you've been giving me. I'm excited, thrilled, hyped even for the year 2024. I expect it to be my best year yet, but it can't happen without y'all. So make sure you stick around and continue to support me, all right? Remember to call 888-727-5303 when you want to call into the show. That's 888-SAS-5303. That's it for this edition of the Stephen A. Smith Show. I'll be back with you in a day or so, right here over the digital airways of YouTube. Until then, peace and love, everybody. Talk to you later.